Welcome to Cultural Technologies. I am Bernard Dionysus Gagan. Today is the first of what will be a few episodes dedicated to visual culture studies. Our guest today is W.J.T. Mitchell of the University of Chicago. He's a well-known literary critic and theorist of visual culture, also editor of the journal Critical Inquiry. This is actually the first interview, I think, that I recorded uh, for this podcast, uh, but I was saving it up until uh, an occasion when I could sort of pair it with a few other relevant episodes. Um, as it happens, I'm about to head to the United States, during which time I'm going to go to the wonderful uh, NOW Visual Culture Conference, it's called. This is going to be held at NYU at the end of May and at the beginning of June. I'm mentioning it because they are still having registration for this event. It's uh, organized in part by Nick Mirzoff over at NYU, and it has a completely fabulous uh, array of speakers, including Wendy Chun of Brown, uh, WJT Mitchell himself, uh, Mackenzie Vark, uh, Mackenzie Wark, excuse me, of um, of the New School, numerous others, including artists. Uh, this this uh, event is sort of uh, it is in a sort of few days of lively conversation. What this podcast aspires to be, in some sense. So, uh, as I as I understand, I think I think registration is open to the public. So consider visiting www.visualculturenow.org uh, if you want to find out about this event, uh, which I think is also partially about thinking about where is uh, visual culture studies today, where is it going. So uh, to think about that, I can't think of anyone, uh, I can hardly think of anyone better than W.J.T. Mitchell, whose book Iconology uh, from I think 1984 uh, was and still is um, a seminal text in visual culture studies as much as literary studies. So this podcast, uh, this interview, was really um, part of its orientation was going back and looking at that book, figuring out uh, what what Tom Mitchell had in mind when he wrote it in the 80s and to see how he, how he thinks about it now. You can tell this is uh, one of the first interviews I did because my normal uh, sort of habit of being a little roundabout in my questions is uh, amplified extensively. I was sort of getting my podcast feet uh, which meant that oftentimes a 20-second question lasted about mm, two minutes. So I apologize uh, for that. So this, this, this after after hardly doing five or six programs, this is already uh, this interview already has a kind of archival uh, value of what I'm figuring out about how to speak in real time uh, for a recording machine. So uh, with no further ado, here is uh, the interview. Our guest today is especially esteemed. We're here with W.J.T. Mitchell, who is the Gaylord Donnelly Distinguished Service Professor of English and Art History. He's the author of books including What Do Pictures Want, The Last Dinosaur Book, Picture Theory, uh, the recently published book, Cloning Terror, um, an early book on uh, William Blake's illustrated manuscripts entitled Blake's Composite Art. Uh, he's also the editor with Mark Hansen of uh, the recently published uh, book, Critical Terms in Media Studies. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Mitchell, for being with us today. Pleasure to be here. Um, so one of the things I was thinking is that maybe we could start by trying to sketch some of your intellectual biography um, and maybe trace out you know, a kind of arc in some of your work. It, 
Your early interest, uh, your early interests were very literary, uh, specifically um, William Blake, um, and this uh, this also relates to your your training in literary studies. Um, but you know, also from the very beginning, uh, you were interested in images. Can you maybe say a little bit about how it is that you became you became interested in both? Say the literary and language, but also images as a as a problem you'd like to investigate. Well, from the very early on, I was interested in uh, both language and imagery as um, kind of interlocking but differentiated uh, systems of meaning communication. Uh, so before I even got into literature, I was a mathematics major, and I was especially. Uh, exercised by the mm -hmm. relation of ge geometry and algebra, uh, the idea of a kind of linear symbolic notation system on the one hand, and then visual, spatial, diagrammatic uh, uh, forms on the other, and the idea of the, their translatability, although they're radically different modes of expression, mm -hmm. they, there is something that passes between them, to, between these two systems. Uh, so when I made the break from mathematics and decided I want, I, my real vocation was literature and the arts, uh, I, it was just great good luck. I had a wonderful professor, Hazard Adams, who uh, gave a course on romantic poetry, uh, focused especially on William Blake. And so Blake's composite art of uh, uh, poetry and painting, uh, particularly his illuminated books, which were also... They were simultaneously uh, throwbacks to uh, medieval illuminated manuscripts. They had the look of the medieval manuscript, and Blake himself thought, thought of himself as a Gothic artist. At the same time, they constituted a technical innovation in um, the, the art of printing. Uh, he was a printmaker, an engraver, and an etcher. and. So he thought he had discovered a radically new technology, um, which he called illuminated printing, uh, in which he did everything uh, by painting and varnish on copper and then immersing it in acid uh, to carve out both words and images. So that, that became the subject of my dissertation. Um, and in the process of it, I kept asking myself larger questions about you know, what does it mean to have a composite art? Does it mean to be both a punk painter and poet? Uh, what are the beyond the f fact of an individual genius commanding both media? What does it mean uh, more generally that so much of uh, culture is is transmitted by uh, forms of visual imagery and uh, mm -hmm. verbal notations? And then, of course, there's always this partner somewhere in between the murmur or whisper mm -hmm. of uh, speech, audition, uh, music. Mm -hmm. uh, I was fascinated from very, very early on that while I was writing my dissertation, I was reading uh, Roland Barth, mm -hmm. and um, the image music text was my Bible. Uh, so music has always kind of been the silent partner for my thinking mm -hmm. about the, this the problem I just call the image text. Uh, sometimes the image hyphen text, the image slash text, mm -hmm. or one word, the image text. Mm -hmm. And um, 
so I wonder if uh, I wonder if it'd be fair to say, right? Obviously, the the literary and problems of language have never ceased to uh, to occupy you um, throughout your career. Uh, but you know, looking over to say the arc of your different texts over the years, mm -hmm. it does seem like in some ways uh, questions of either visual media or media broadly conceived to include, um, you know, uh, the digital and so on, seems to have, uh, you know, played a stronger role uh, as you proceeded, right? So, you know, perhaps in the time at Blake, I wonder if maybe there was, a, I say, balance between uh, the visual and the linguistic. And then there, there was a move towards more questions concerning visual in media over the years. Is that is that a fair construction? Yeah, yeah I think that's that's uh, fair enough. And I, psychologically, I would say, since my disciplinary training was in literature and mm -hmm. language, um, it always felt to me like the frontier of my uh, understanding of culture it, it always resided in the image. That's what mm -hmm. I wasn't trained in. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's as if... Uh, that was my frontier, mm -hmm. uh, and so it's always been the kind of locus of excitement. And then, of course, it recycles back into literature when you consider the uh, the concept of the verbal icon, the uh, the image in the text, the uh, the role of images inside language, the role of figurative language mm -hmm. and metaphor. Uh, so it's as if. Uh, you go from the known to the unknown. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, the image was always the frontier. Mm -hmm. the That's why, it, at one point, I thought, aha, well, n now that I have my base in language, I, you know, I was part of the structuralist generation. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought, now we can conquer this frontier of the image. Mm -hmm. Of course, we hadn't even conquered our own home territory of language. It mm -hmm. was uh, a complete... Delusion, but there was this moment when I thought, "It's this is the moment when we could have uh, something like a Saussurean or Chomskyan revolution of uh, the, the, of the image." And I, that's why I wrote iconology. I wrote a book saying, "This will be the theory of images." Mm -hmm. And of course, the key moment was sensing the failure of that, mm -hmm. and saying, uh, "It turns out." As far as I can tell, every theory of images is grounded in a fear of images, uh, an anxiety that maybe they can't be mastered. And of course, then that recycles back to language. That, you know, we rediscover then that not only does uh, can't we, we cannot conquer or master theoretically uh, the realm of images, we can't master our own language either, our own meta language. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, well, then maybe maybe now's a good time to uh, transition towards the iconology work, mm -hmm. um, and then later on we can discuss some of the the, the other uh, say media you've been interested in. So, uh, iconology um, the full text the full title would be iconology image text ideology uh, was published in 1986. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say it's at this point at this point probably a classic in both visual and literary studies. Um, but you also use that as a form, uh, you argue that a sort of study of images is also linked to uh, 
understanding some of the ways we think about or talk about uh, politics, ideology. There's even elements of uh, things like science or, or philosophy in there. Um, if I could just read a, a short excerpt from the introduction. Mm-hmm. Right? One of the ways you, you, at that point, you described the book this way. Quote, The book reflects on answers to two questions that come up regularly. What is an image? And what is the difference between images and words? You add to that, uh, what are the systems of power and canons of value, that is, ideologies, that inform the answers to these questions and make them matters of polemical dispute rather than purely theoretical interest? And I've excerpted that a little bit, so... uh, I would encourage our listeners to go to the original to get the, the full uh, strength of the argument. Uh, you know, one question, and this, I hope this isn't uh, too, too broad or sweeping, right? This is, uh, you're right, this is a book about images rather than saying it's a, a book about pictures, right? And I'm pretty sure I know what a picture is. I, you know, I'm a little less sure that I know less than I know what an image is. So what does it mean that this is a, a book about images? What, is, what are you talking about when you talk about an image? Uh, well, I'm, t- I'm talking about a, a relation. You know, an image is um, a sign by resemblance. I follow Peirce in, in defining it as an iconic sign. Um, likeness, similitude, mimesis, all of the, uh, the, the terms that involve resemblance and, uh, and similarity. Uh, so, uh, the, the difference between that mode of relationship and what you might call the law-governed, uh, convention-governed uh, uh, relationships of the symbolic mm-hmm. uh, of language, the the difference then between those two modes of thinking about the way meaning arises in the world, that that became for me. Uh, a really central issue of inquiry. So even the name of the book, iconology, to me is a, uh, a bifurcated term, the mm-hmm. icon and the logos uh, encounter. And there are a lot of ways of reading that. This is about the science of images, mm-hmm. the attempt to theorize and um, rationalize uh, the, the world of images. That is, the world of... Uh, Iconic relations, mm-hmm. uh, as Peirce would put it, uh, qualifies firstnesses. The n- notion that there are several things in this room that uh, are black, several things that are white. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, you know, the, the level of phenomenology, of uh, perception and apperception, um, that we take in uh, sensation, perception, and then make a, into meaning, uh, connect with language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so iconology is partly that the science of images also the rhetoric of images the lo- logos in that sense the, uh, uh, I edited a book very early on called The Language of Images mm-hmm. which uh, uh, d- dealt with this issue uh, and when I say rhetoric of images I mean what is it we are compelled to say or what do we usually say what are the things that are said about images. Of course, one of the first things that is said is, well, an image is uh, assigned by likeness. That's, um, you know, it's, it's quite simple. Uh, 
it reminds us of something else, it looks like something else, or and it, it, since images are not medium specific, I think this is a very important, the difference you mentioned between image and picture mm -hmm. is, um, I always put it this way, an, an image uh, floats, an image appears, this is, these are the things we say about it. A picture, we say in English, uh, which is w one of the few languages where you can make this differentiation clear, doesn't work in German, uh, since built covers both picture and image. Um, but in English, uh, we say you can hang a picture, you can uh, frame a picture, you can uh, do all kinds of very material things to a picture. An image doesn't work quite that way. Uh, an image is more evanescent. Uh, it seems to have less materiality to it. And then trying to refine those, that what I would call the rhetoric around images, the things that are said, things people say. Partly what I was doing then was uh, something like an ethnography of images. I, mm -hmm. uh, what, what do people say about images? That's the opening sentence of the book is, this is a book about the things people say. Mm -hmm. about images. Uh, so I tried to start with what you might call vernacular theory, what, uh, rather than starting with very technical distinctions, just uh, asking empirically, what is the conversation? What is the buzz mm -hmm. around uh, this strange concept, the, the image or icon? Uh, mm -hmm. You can get plenty technical, uh, as things go along, but I always like to start with the vernacular. Mm -hmm. I think theory goes right straight down into ordinary language, and uh, as Wittgenstein mm -hmm. said, ordinary language is all right. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to stop with it, but uh, it's a good place to start. And just um, to think about what it means to have this, uh, say, logos of images, or you know, to put it more every day, um, to you know, have a book about in part about the things people say about images, um, you know, in, uh, you know, for, a, you know, for a long time, you know, and probably mostly subsequent to this book, there became this interest in things like social constructionism, uh, and particularly the linguistic as this, you know, perhaps language is a way in which we're constantly constructing and mediating our, um, interaction with the world. Um, and so, would this, would this, would these questions you're asking be a question about the social construction of images, or the construction of images um, by language, or does 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 the work maybe move in a different direction? Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, the social construction of X uh, of anything has always it bothered me mm -hmm. as a phrase to lean on very hard mm -hmm. um, because it explains too much and too little at the same time. Um, I, I'm uh, as interested in the construction of the social as mm -hmm. I am in the social construction of, uh, of X. So I think images are one of the key um, sign types or symbolic forms that allow us to construct the social in the first place. But they also... I mean, in a, as a dialectical thinker, I always want to ask the social construction of X as opposed to what kind of construction of X? Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, what is the non-social? What is the asocial? Uh, same question with culture. You know, are images uh, 
equivalent to you know, a kind of strand or bandwidth in, in culture itself. Um, but what is the non-cultural? One of the things that hit me very early about what we say about images is that images are the natural sign. The images are the non-cultural sign. They are, the, in some sense, even the non-technical. Uh, they are, as Peirce said, firstnesses. Uh, and the opposition between nature and convention mm -hmm. uh, it, it has often been, uh, this is one of the things people say about the difference between words and images. Words are conventional signs, images are natural signs. The, the sign by resemblance is more uh, innate to us, and it, this goes back to Aristotle saying we have a natural instinct for mimesis, to mm -hmm. produce the different by uh, engaging in copying, uh, in, in uh, imitating something else. And this is also why mimesis is often described as an instinct, you know, prior mm -hmm. to uh, social construction. In fact, if you ask where does social construction come from, the usual idea is, well, it comes from mimesis or from uh, uh, image making. Mm -hmm. So that's why one of the chapters in this book is a uh, critique of Ernst Gombrich, mm -hmm. uh, who famously uh, e elaborated the nature convention distinction as mm -hmm. the key to understanding uh, the difference between images and words. Mm -hmm. And uh, partly producing uh, a critique of Gombrich, but also a, sort of a partial reaffirmation that we need to think the outside mm -hmm. of technology, of culture, of society. Uh, and not just think that reiterating this mantra that mm -hmm. such and such is a social construction as if we've discovered mm -hmm. something always drives me crazy when people think uh, this is a breakthrough mm -hmm. <laughs> actually it's just it's breaking through an open door uh, the, the, uh, we, we shouldn't be too thrilled mm -hmm. or happy when uh, we discover that something is a social construction mm -hmm. And uh, so, regarding this, say interest uh, in say interrogating the the claim that some images are non-cultural or non-technical, and also thinking about uh, this relationship you're constructing or organizing in this text between um, maybe not even organizing, maybe tracing out is a better term uh, between uh, images and between language. Um, one of the things that strikes me about this book, certainly reading it reading it today, is that there also seems throughout the book a, a potential relationship between uh, the image and the technical. Um, so, you know, when you as examples of uh, some of the ways people have talked about um, images, you use uh, the famous example of Plato's cave, where we have projections on a wall with a seemingly technical aspect to them, theatrical aspect to them. Uh, Aristotle's uh, wax tablet, uh, where there's a, a sort of process of, say, imprinting. Um, and, and you spend a particular amount of time discussing, I think, most of a chapter, um, notions of the camera obscura, um, including a peculiar, say, dissonance between uh, Locke, and Karl Marx in terms of the ways they discuss uh, the camera obscura. So, you know, I'd like to sort of start asking you some questions about the relationship between the technical and the image. Um, I wonder if uh, maybe as a way of 
broaching into that topic and some of the ways in which the technical have shaped the way people think about images, uh, if you'd be willing to read an excerpt from your book uh, where Locke uh, discussed the camera obscura as a uh, metaphor for understanding. Mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, probably the whole passage or as much as you think is relevant. You want me to read Locke or? Uh, yeah, read, uh, Locke. Okay, here's John Locke. I pretend not to teach but to inquire, and therefore cannot but confess here again that external and internal sensation are the only passages that I can find of knowledge to the understanding. These alone, as far as I can discover, are the windows by which light is let into this dark room. For methinks the understanding is not much unlike a closet, wholly shut from light, with only some little opening left to let in external visible resemblances or ideas of things without. Would the pictures coming into such a dark room but stay there and lie so orderly as to be found upon occasion, it would very much resemble the understanding of a man in reference to all objects of sight and the ideas of them. Uh, I mean, it's an amazing passage. It's so... um, Because it's basically... An updating uh, for uh, the 17th century of um, uh, Plato's uh, cave, only instead of the ex- exterior of the cave of understanding uh, being uh, a transcendental realm of forms mm-hmm. accessible to the philosopher, uh, mainly via mathematics. Uh, the the outside of the cave is simply the outside of the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the world out there, uh, the world of uh, of daylight or moonlight, uh, and uh, it's the interior of the body that's dark. And of course, Locke is thinking uh, both literally about eyesight here mm-hmm. and uh, the visual imagination, visual perception. Um, optics, visual sensation. He's also thinking figuratively about all the other senses as well. But as usual, light mm-hmm. and images are the sovereign sense. Mm-hmm. They, uh, you know, he's very much in, uh, the, into the Renaissance primacy of sight as the master metaphor for human understanding itself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but given that as and is he talking about technology here? Is he mm-hmm. talking about a camera obscura? Well, no, he's really talking about a natural human body. This could also be the description of animal understanding. Mm-hmm. How do animals uh, navigate the world? How do they recognize? Mm-hmm. Well, they have their form of understanding. This is pre-linguistic. It's mm-hmm. ideas come before words, mm-hmm. and ideas are images. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this is why when Peirce... Uh, thinks about um, about images, uh, resemblance or ideas of things. Those are firstnesses, the, the the first thing that comes to you, the impression, the, mm-hmm. uh, the the outer image. So, but at the same time, of course, it's technical. It's a metaphor comparing uh, a natural, non-technical. Uh, process the natural process of vision, uh, in, insofar as it produces a world, produces impressions of things, uh, but it's also a closet, mm-hmm. uh, a metaphor which, of course, is going to get 
uh, uh, become very potent, and it's a, a kind of predecessor of the, the, the process of photography itself. Mm-hmm. If only, he says, uh, the, the pictures could be um, uh, fixed if they would stay there and lie so orderly as to be found mm-hmm. upon occasion. And then the memory, the suddenly you're shifting to a notion of a photo archive, mm-hmm. uh, avant la uh, uh, It's the same way in which when we read uh, the allegory of the cave in Plato, we can't help but read back cinema mm-hmm. onto it. Here we read, read back still photography mm-hmm. onto, uh, onto Locke's uh, metaphor. So it's a technical metaphor, but it's a metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's uh, for something that's natural. That's why I'm always interested in this moment of um, the, the the place where they seem to flip flop. Mm-hmm. Is it that uh, the natural process that we've discovered a technical model for how it works, mm-hmm. uh, or is it that the technical model has always been growing out of something that was uh, uh, not an invention? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one thing that always struck me, by the way, about Kittler's uh, it, it, uh, theory of media. I know we talked about this mm-hmm. years ago when uh, I think you were in my class, and that's whether Kittler has uh, a view of technology as changing the way we see, the way we hear, mm-hmm. uh, the way we think, or do, does technology try to catch up with and reconfigure something we already are doing, but do it better? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and fulfill something that's almost automatic and innate to us. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we just kind of you know try and probe a little a, a little bit further. Um, so, for example, in this instance, there is this the strange ambivalence where, on the one hand. Um, uh, Locke seems to be describing, you know, the the, the image, uh, the, the reception of an image in an entirely natural way. On the other hand, there is this kind of um, quasi-technical setup that, uh, on one hand, justifies or rationalizes the naturalness. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, seems to disturb it a little bit, seems to kind of trouble it, or, you know, another way of saying it, even... Historicize it, mm-hmm. historicize it, or if you're if you're even more skeptical, almost industrialize it or something. Um, uh, you know, why do you think there is this constant juxtaposition of um, understanding the image with reference to a kind of technical setup? Is the image does it have an, uh, an intrinsically kind of technical dimension, or you know, in other words, we say a set of techniques? Or is there a technique of the image? Um, or is this more about the way we happen to talk about images? And, you know, or are these things we can't really unpack? Mm-hmm. Well, like Locke, I pretend not to teach but to inquire. Mm. So this is a very good question. Uh, I, I think between um, nature and uh, technology, nature or nature and culture, there is this wonderful concept known as second nature. And it strikes me that the image uh, resides on that border 
mm-hmm. and that uh, when we're talking about uh, technology, we shouldn't forget this this kind of liminal realm, uh, second nature. This is the point where, and our words for this kind of tell us when somebody says, uh, well, that's a very conventional thing that you're doing. It's habitual. Mm. It's normal. Uh, They quickly slide into saying it's the natural thing to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Second nature is... uh, technesis on the border mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's also technesis which has become normalized which seems inevitable which seems like uh, well, how else could you do it um, and it, it, it strikes me that the dark room with the light coming in the, the camera obscura is um, uh, I mean we're sitting in a room with windows right now mm-hmm. uh, and our shadows are cast on the floor uh, if we were sitting in a cave with a fire burning, our shadows would be cast on the wall. Uh, all of that is on the border of the technical and the natural, uh, and the uh, suddenly the transforming of it into a metaphor for human understanding itself mm-hmm. is uh, uh, a moment when it sort of leaps out of its skin yeah. as a. Uh, a scene for imagining what it is we're doing when we're uh, making sense of things, mm-hmm. uh, uh, understanding them. Mm-hmm. So again, I, that's why I'm constantly pressing on the question of social construction, cultural construction, technical as opposed to non-technical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is Locke's passage is uh, is right on the border. Mm-hmm. You know, one of uh, one of the things that this seems to relate to, um, which you've also been working on both in this book and elsewhere, is um, uh, iconoclasm and the fear of images, um, both in this book and in other texts. Uh, you know, you've talked about some of the ways in which there's a fear of the image becoming artifice, mm-hmm. a fear of the image somehow becoming false or misleading. Um, on one hand. Uh, I'm sure if it's in this book, I think in this book, but also some other works, you know, a whole history of notions of golems, you know, and it's something created in the image of man that comes to overwhelm us. Um, It's the fear of images coming alive. mm -hmm. uh, But it's also simultaneously the hope that images will come alive, Mm -hmm. since that's one of the things, uh, when people talk about images, one of the things they praise and they want to happen is, oh, look how lifelike it is. It's Mm -hmm. just... A perfect resemblance of uh, a living thing, isn't that wonderful? So the wonder and the desire to produce a living image mm-hmm. is there. At the same time, there's the fear of it. Mm-hmm. That, uh, oh my gosh, it's come alive and it's got a mind of its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I say I, I mentioned a minute ago the shadows. So you can see our shadows cast mm-hmm. here on the floor. But uh, what does it mean to be afraid of your own shadow? Mm-hmm. It's a common saying about shadows, uh, usually about irrational fears. You know, you shouldn't be afraid of that. It's merely your own shadow. Uh, but the shadow is also, as we know, mm-hmm. the shadow knows. The shadow is the phantom. It is, uh, and uh, I always remember those great uh, cartoons that I grew up with, mm-hmm. um, animated cartoons in which 
uh, somebody would discover their shadow and they would yeah. then peel it up off the floor and the shadow would stand up next to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so this idea that the image is not merely a sign, mm-hmm. uh, but it is a what uh, McTausig and I in our seminar and is called a vital sign. Mm-hmm. It's a, a living uh, sign which takes on a life of its own. And that then becomes uh, the basis for a whole set of social relationships that we construct between ourselves and the images that we have produced or, mm-hmm. or that we, in the case of shadows, that we've cast mm-hmm. outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. That we've noticed moving, living, looking back at us. Mm-hmm. Um, my colleague here in Berlin, Horst Breitkopf, has talked about this as the image act or the build act uh, uh, process, which the image seems to act uh, you know, autonomously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's I think the uh, again the natural or innate or instinctive foundation of um, the the these uh, highly elaborated versions of fear of images of iconophobia. Um, Iconoclasm, mm-hmm. the impulse to destroy the image, to say, no, we've got to get rid of it. That's, uh, again, that's one of the, the impulses of uh, critique itself, is uh, to work through a discourse of iconoclasm and demystify the false image, make it disappear, uh, free, or to free us from it, since it's often, mm-hmm. the, the image is often a figure of alienation. That is something that I've made. It's outside of me, and now mm-hmm. it is dominating me. Uh, so it's it's a, like a figure of my alienated powers. Mm-hmm. This was the Marxist critique of, of commodity fetishism. The commodity fetish is like not just a commodity, but a commodity fetish. That is, it's an alienated product of uh, human creative powers, uh, which then... As he says, the commodities take on a social relation among themselves, and human beings begin to have thing-like relations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's as if the humanity is transferred out into the world of images. Mm-hmm. So, one of uh, maybe just to link this to some of your more recent work. Um, so, in the in the iconology book, uh, which again was written or published at least in 1986. Uh, you know, there's this very elegant uh, and uh, sophisticated unpacking on the one hand of the ways people talk about images and this this opening onto some of the various ways in which political and other discourse um, takes shape around something like a fear of images becoming a lie, right? And so that's the example of, of Marx and the, the uh, commodity fetishism. And you know one, another thing you note in that, I think very early on in the iconology is, you know, uh, that man himself is said, uh, you know, to be in in a certain Jewish or Christian tradition to be created in the likeness or image of God. Mm-hmm. And so you know from the very beginning, you know, there's this you know uncanny dimension within what you're describing. Um, whereas more recently. Uh, You've been talking about something that's much closer to a kind of literal becoming alive of images. Um, 
So particularly questions like uh, cloning. Mm -hmm. um, if uh, if I could quickly, if I could quote a passage from from your book, "What Do Pictures Want," uh, which I think came out in two thousand five, you write. <clears throat> The life of images has taken a decisive turn in our time. The oldest myth about the creation of living images, the fabrication of an intelligent organism by artificial technical means, has now become a theoretical and practical possibility thanks to new constellations of media at many different levels. Um, the convergence of genetic and computational technologies with new forms of speculative capital has turned cyberspace and biospace in the frontiers for technical innovation, appropriation, and exploitation. Um, and you know this this is related to you know your discussions, for example, of you know basically cloning and Dolly the sheep. Um, does this mark something like a, a decisive, a real shift where what in your earlier work, like iconology, was a kind of metaphor? Um, now. Has become a reality, and we need a new, uh, you know, a new language, a new theoretical framework to talk about. Or is this, you know, can we say this is a rearticulation that still is connected to what you were talking about in iconology? You know. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it has to be both, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, both a rearticulation and a need for a, a new articulation. Um, I find it hard to, to separate those two. And this, by the way, relates to the question of uh, the, the figurative or the metaphorical uh, and its relation to the literal, mm -hmm. uh, the kind of realization of that which was imaginary. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I wrote a paper connected to the bio-cybernetic text you just uh, quoted. Uh, basically borrowing Ranciere's title, uh, The Future of the Image, mm -hmm. to think about the way images uh, prophesy the future. Mm -hmm. That I mean, we've always known imagination and the, uh, the faculty of the seer is uh, uh, one of prediction, prophecy, uh, kind of clairvoyance about what is to come. Mm -hmm. uh, so Plato's cave foresees for us, cinema. Uh, Locke's camera obscura foresees for us photography. Um, and when those things arrive, as they, it seems like it's almost inevitable. Mm -hmm. Whatever we can imagine, as Blake puts it, whatever can be imagined is an image of the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it will come to pass. Well, it, one of the... Uh, the oldest myths we have is of a godlike creator who takes a lump of clay, breathes life into it, sculpts it into a human form, brings it to life. Uh, we also have a story about that same god saying, that's what I do. Mm -hmm. I'm capable of doing it. I command nature. I, I am the, the giver of life mm -hmm. and the taker away of life. You, your business is just to live. Mm -hmm. and to live according to my laws. That's the kind of Judeo-Christian and Muslim, uh, the, the peoples of the book all buy that story. And it's a story that also goes into many other cultures. That's what the Creator does. But there's really one really distinctive feature of uh, the peoples of the book, 
they all have a, they are peoples of the book of writing and mm-hmm. they have a commandment which says uh, don't make any graven images and this is the most important commandment mm-hmm. because if you break this commandment I'm happy to have you break another commandment about murder mm-hmm. you know any, anybody who worships idols anybody who makes images who creates them or bows down to them they are to be killed not only them but their children their children's children their, their wives and so concubines uh, it's a mandate for mass murder in the name of the prohibition on uh, on images so it's a very weird and bizarre thing the image goes before us when the Israelites um, uh, ask Aaron to create an image since Moses mm-hmm. has gone away they say, you know, you've got to lead us out of the wilderness we need an image to go before us so he makes the golden calf uh, and, the ca- and of course the fear is that that image will come alive or assume a life of its own that will mystify the people alienate their creative powers um, and the, so what happens when a technology arrives that allows us to take um, you know, organic matter mm-hmm. and breathe life into it uh, or allows us to make a copy of a living thing, which is itself alive. Mm-hmm. It's no longer a picture of uh, an organism. It is the same organism. And it's not only a copy externally, it's a deep copy, because inside of it, at the molecular level, it has the same codes, same DNA. It's an identical twin, mm-hmm. but a twin not simultaneous, but in succession twin after twin after twin that's the clone uh, that it, it, it's impossible to think of that as well now we have something new and let's talk about its newness mm-hmm. you can't talk about its newness without its oldness about its connection and you know why is uh, this phenomenon I call clonophobia <laughs> so rampant why when George W. Bush was elected president before 9-11, he had one major agenda, and that was uh, clonophobia. We must mm-hmm. stop stem cell research. We must stop genetic uh, research. It is meddling with the secret of life. It's impious. Uh, it's going to produce monsters. Uh, so there's a huge set of very deep religious taboos, mm-hmm. uh, cultural taboos surrounding um, the unfettered creation of images, mm-hmm. likenesses of life forms. Mm-hmm. And so just to, to maybe try and push you a little more on this point, um, is there, right, uh, I'm wondering to what extent there's a kind of fault line here between, uh, again, language and the way, you know, the way we've been talking about images uh, for millennia, it seems, and, um, you know, the development of a kind of technical setup, you know, and a series of practices which, um, uh, you know, are not simply imagining, you know, the creation of images that are like life, but actually manipulating reality, right? Intervening on reality in a, in a way that's somehow different and Potentially more profound than language, and this is this is a question more than an assertion. Um, so, is there 
is there a fault line and is there maybe a, a technical technological fault line between uh, these earlier discussions and scientists in a laboratory who are working with more than language they're working with tools instruments uh, procedures well I think there's always a fault line yeah. I think there are many fault lines um, and, and that the history of images uh, is is filled with fault lines with moments of invention uh, of technical invention that uh, change the whole economy mm -hmm. of images the invention of oil painting suddenly made images mobile in a way they never had been uh, they, they commodified uh, images in mm -hmm. actual pictures uh, that could be bought and sold circulated they weren't the, the old mural painting, the old fresco painting was fixed in place. You had to buy the whole house in order to possess the painting. Now you could take your paintings with you. Mm -hmm. That was a huge change uh, in, the, in the economy of images. Similarly, the invention of photography. I don't need to rehearse for you Walter Benjamin's arguments about that, or uh, it was a Baudelaire before him. Um, but uh, some fault lines are really, really big. Mm -hmm. I think the invention of the digital image, the, uh, the move from chemical-based photography to uh, information-based is, um, is momentous. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's momentous in the way that some people have thought of it as losing contact with the real. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, you, you know, you're familiar, I'm sure, with this argument that digital photography no longer has the indexical blah, blah, blah mm -hmm. uh, uh, link with the real thing. And, um, you know, so all is lost, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Reality effects are no, no longer possible. I think it's exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. The thing that is momentous about digital photography is that it's a double copy. Uh, a copy both of the analog surface the appearance, the, the, the visual impression, and of the underlying code, mm -hmm. uh, which includes all this metadata uh, as part of the automatism of photography. That is, the time when the image was taken, mm -hmm. uh, the apparatus, the identity of the apparatus, which often will help you identify the operator, the mm -hmm. human operator of the uh, machine, and in principle, where it was taken. If you knew, you know, if a camera is attached to a GPS system, um, you, you know when, where, by by what it was taken. That automatism was never there mm -hmm. for uh, chemical-based photography. So you've got a double inscription, spatial and temporal, um, uh, digital and analog. Mm -hmm. uh, and now that digital cameras have such large, can produce such large files, the analog impression is just as high resolution as any um, uh, chemical-based photograph. Mm -hmm. So the, the, it is momentous. It is a, um, uh, a kind of break. Mm -hmm. uh, and with any break of the sort, yes, we have to re-articulate. What do we say about photographs now? And the same thing's happening with what do we say about life forms mm -hmm. when it turns out we can duplicate them? Well, we need not to first not to forget the past. That cloning is a Greek word 
It describes an ancient process of hybridization. It mm. started with plants. Uh, the, you know, the Greeks were cloning. Uh, by the, the word means uh, grafting, producing new mm-hmm. hybrids, and that's that's basically what cloning is an extension of this ancient, originally bo- botanical process mm-hmm. of uh, uh, using similar similars, using parts to create new holes. Uh, and, uh, and and new hybrids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are lots of ethical and political issues surrounding cloning. Uh, I wouldn't deny that, but uh, at the same time, I think it's very important to take a long historical view of it and see that the kind of break in introduces that this break has had its rehearsals before, uh, and often in religious discourse, and that we need to be mindful of those when we. Uh, confronted contemporary politics and ethics, mm-hmm. and um, so maybe for our, uh, our last, uh, the last question for this uh, conversation. Um, so both in, both in our conversation today and also in your writing, I think you've made a you know very convincing case for thinking about, for example, something like genetic engineering uh, within a history of iconology, and maybe even within having a belonging to some extent. To part of a field like iconology, um, you know, I wonder if you know when you look back over your work, um, if today it occurs to you that does uh, say genetic engineering have anything to teach us to teach iconology? Right? Is there does it does it work in the other direction where suddenly these new sciences of the image uh, cause us to sort of uh, Reconceptualize or re-theorize what an image really, really is. Yeah, I'm sure uh, that's that's true, um, and I think m- my own understanding of the digital image as a deep copy mm-hmm. is actually it's more of a spin-off of my understanding of cloning than vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it, and here's the analogy uh, I would use. Um, the, uh, the the surface uh, is to the depth in, in each each of these image types in the clone on the one hand and the digital photograph on the other. Uh, it's as if the code uh, and the metadata that accompanies the digital photograph is like the DNA mm-hmm. of that image, uh, and it's what permits a set of instructions to go on to make mm-hmm. new copies, but also to adjust those copies. Uh, so genetic engineering over here, which works on the DNA uh, code and recodes or mm-hmm. uh, produces a new uh, string of information, uh, a new life script, um, it, it, it strikes me that that is going to instruct us about what is possible with uh, the, you know, ordinary digital images. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there's a, a new book by, by Routledge called The Pictorial Turn, uh, which has a bunch of essays by various people uh, about my work. I'd recommend one essay uh, from this biologist, Norman MacLeod, mm-hmm. who takes the idea of the image as a quasi-life form and uh, takes it from the standpoint of biology to say, there's nothing quasi about this. Mm. 
you know, let's, you know, I want to think through this as a scientist and ask, what is it we do as biologists when we uh, uh, take a specimen, mm-hmm. we look at it, and we associate it with a species? That, even the word specimen and species, as you know, is uh, completely saturated with the language of iconology and images. Uh, uh, a species is a visual uh, form. Mm-hmm. Uh, same, the word speculation comes from it. So specimen is to species as image is to picture, or other way around, mm-hmm. actually. The species is the image. Mm-hmm. Uh, the specimen is the picture. Uh, McLeod takes this whole thing to talk about scientific practice uh, and to the, the way in which scientific knowledge is generated out of images of life forms, which are then encoded, mm-hmm. uh, put into databases, and uh, in which you can trace the evolutionary development of, uh, in his case, microorganisms. He, he's looking at tiny animals mm-hmm. where the evolutionary record is unbroken. So uh, I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of crosstalk mm-hmm. in coming years between um, image scientists and life scientists. There already is. Uh, McLeod is right at the forefront of that. And um, so we, he's coming to Chicago next fall. We're, we're doing uh, a seminar called Images and Science. Uh, and Peter Gallison will be coming. Uh, it's a, we're going to try to uh, accelerate this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think both sides are going to have a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, of course, there are big technical barriers, but uh, there's also my old starting point, ordinary language. Uh, people can actually sit and talk to each other about these things mm-hmm. and uh, maybe learn something. Great. Well, I think that's a, a promising uh, place to end. Um, so thank you for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. been a pleasure, Bernie. Uh-huh.